All right. Uh, actually, uh, I shared last week at the Itaewon Campus Sunday Swim uh, about a fast that I've been uh, doing for these last few weeks. And for those who are on leadership, uh, you guys had access to the Sunday Swim MP3, so you probably, most of you have listened to it. Uh, which leaders have listened to it? Is that, I got most of the leaders. Okay. All right. And for those who, uh, uh, they, don't, don't, they don't have access to our Facebook leadership group, uh, I just want to share uh, briefly before I begin my message today. Um, currently, I am in the middle of, well, I'm toward the end, praise the Lord, <laughs> of a 40-day fast. Now, before you think I'm holy and godly, all right, this is the first 40-day fast, the longest fast that I've ever undertaken. And personally, I don't like to fast for long periods of time uh, because this happens. I just start losing weight. And I think I've already lost about 8 to 10 pounds. And uh, back in my college days, I used to be a lot more buff. <laughs> and I would eat an incredible amount. I have protein shakes with me everywhere I go so that I can continue to keep uh, beefed up and muscular. But ever since I took over as the pastor of this church, uh, my muscles have deteriorated quite a bit because I've uh, not been able to exercise as much as I would like. Anyway, um, so I'm in the middle of this 40-day fast. I'm toward the end of it. And what inspired me to do this fast is when Pastor Sam Song came and he preached his message in September... He shared his story and his testimony of a 40-day fast that he did. He actually did two, almost back-to-back. And the second one that he did, he did for his father. Because he realized that the Lord was speaking to him about sonship. And to really walk in that spirit of sonship. And to seek out the blessing of his biological father as a way to really walk in that spirit of sonship. So he did a 40-day fast. And his father actually uh, was a missionary to Uzbekistan. So, you know, his father is a pretty, you know, godly man, you know, really committed his life to the Lord. And uh, at the end of his 40-day fast, he went to his father, who happened to be in New York, and, at, and he kind of confessed to his father these certain things and then asked for his blessing. And Pastor Sam's father laid his hands and blessed him, and they actually, he actually broke his fast uh, by having communion. I don't know if he did that both times, or if he just did that the first time. Uh, I think he did it both times. Uh, and after I heard that testimony, it really touched me. Because there was a perspective that Pastor Sam shared that I had never thought about regarding my relationship with my father. Now, just real quick, my father is an atheist. He really actually hates Christianity because of a lot of the corruption that he saw in the churches that were planted around Tegu at the time of the Korean War. And so he's really jaded. And uh, I think rightly so. There was a lot of corruption in Korean churches uh, around that time. And my dad has um, been just a vehement enemy of Christianity uh, ever since I knew him as a, as a kid. And um, so I've been praying for him. In fact, when I became a Christian in the fourth grade, until the time I graduated from high school... When I was 18 years old, every single day I prayed for my father. I did not miss a single night. I had a habit of praying uh, with my head into my pillow and my butt into the air. Uh, it's the way my mom prays. And uh, I would always pray. And 
I didn't know what to pray for sometimes, but I always pray for the salvation of my dad. When I got to college, uh, I got a little bit more lazy with that. But regardless, uh, there, there has been faithful prayer that has been lifted up by myself and my sister uh, for the salvation of my dad. Uh, my parents are divorced. Uh, they're not together. Uh, but my mom continues to pray for my dad. Now, the perspective that Pastor Sam shared that really touched me was the perspective that most of us in the Asian American community, we play the blame game when it comes to our parents. And rightly so. A lot of our parents were not there. Uh, if, we had, if we were on the basketball team, if we were tall enough to be on the basketball team, uh, your father or your mother probably never showed up to a single game. I remember I used to do varsity wrestling. You know, I never really expected my mom to come by or my dad to come by. You know, it's just an Asian thing. Most Asians, you know, you got, you got your white friends. They got all their parents on the side. Yeah, boy, you're my boy. And then, and then you score a goal. And you're like, yeah, me. Hey, give me a high five. Yeah, they're all right. You know, and you just kind of, um, you know, you just kind of get by that way. Uh, and, yeah, that's the common story among Asian Americans. And a lot of us, once we grow up, we play the blame game. Uh, we say... Uh, you know, I have to go through all this healing because it's my dad's fault. Uh, I go through all this healing because it's my mom's fault. Uh, and we often place all the responsibility and blame upon our parents. And that's not inaccurate. I mean, but the perspective Pastor Sam shared was uh, the perspective of us owning up to the fact that many of us have also been bad sons and daughters. And a lot of us think that because we have bad mothers and fathers, that justifies us being a bad son. And in my own eyes, I know that that's exactly what I did throughout my adult years. Um, you know, I always focused on forgiving my dad and being healed from whatever negligence that he had. He was never present in my, in my childhood. He was never present. He was always out drinking. He was out uh, with his friends, came in, coming home at 2 in the morning. You know, things like that. So, you know, he was never really there for me. And so the focus was always on forgiving him and moving on and trying to love him with the love of Christ. But I realized that over the years, I've been a pretty bad son. How do I know this? I know this because when I see some of you, uh, you guys here at the church, I notice you guys call your parents like every other day. Some of you are crazy. You guys call them every day or like three times a day. I'm like, how do you pay for your phone bill? Um... But many of you, you guys, at least call once a week. All right? You know how often I call my parents? And maybe this is a Tegu thing. Is Deacon Jung here? Maybe he can, he can vouch for me. Uh, Tegu people tend to be really... Um, they believe that the best way to show love is just through action and not through words. Not ex- expressing it's not cool. Especially in Gyeongsangdo area. You just don't do that. And they think that if you do do that, then you're being fake. And they believe more in showing it through action. But anyway, I mean, it's developed a pretty bad habit down there where nobody says, I love you. Nobody hugs each other. I mean, Tegu people, man, you just meet Tegu people. You know, all right? You just, you know, they, they just, you know. You know, I'll say, I love you. I love you, Appa, you know. And he'll be like, uh, okay. Good day. Good day. You know? Or like I go down for Seolla uh, or Chusak to my, my, my uh, uncles down in Daegu and I'll be like, you know, uh, 큰, 큰 아빠, 사랑합니다. You know? <laughs> uh, 그래, 잘 가. 
<laughs> uh, I just be like, all right, all right, goodbye, you know. Um, and uh, I always thought, with all of that, that ex- excuse my behavior uh, from being a fairly negligent son. And I realized that uh, it doesn't. And you know, I need to. Um, I need to, but I want to. Just kind of come honest before my dad and also to confess to him that uh, I haven't been the best of sons and ask for his forgiveness. And then I'm actually going to ask for his blessing. Now, I know he's not a Christian. All right, but still, I'm still going to ask for his blessing. Um, He hears about New Philly. He's been hearing about New Philly more and more. Uh, He's on Facebook. So, you know, whenever I get tagged in the picture... I know that it shows up on his feed because he doesn't have that many friends, you know. <laughs> uh, and actually, the day I got married was the first time my dad stepped foot into a church in decades. And uh, I didn't even think he would come. But, you know, I got, he flew in for my wedding three years ago. And I, I asked him, hey, um, you know, your son is the lead pastor at this church. And I'm actually going to be preaching the day after I get married. And so, uh, you know, Appa, if you want to come join us for service, you know, I would will, I will love to have you come. And he's like, oh, good. Okay. Okay. And then uh, I, w- I called up Brian Wee. I was like, Brian Wee, make sure you pick him up. All right, make sure you go upstairs. If he doesn't come down, make sure you knock on the door and you know, all this stuff, you know, and make sure that he comes. And uh, when Brian Wee actually went to pick him up, you know, my dad was all ready to go. And he came to the service, and Pink Sung sat next to him and tried to talk to him in Korean, because Sung's Korean is decent. And, um, and uh, he's actually really good. And uh, he sat through the whole service. And I know that God gave him a glimpse of church that was completely radically different than the church he saw growing up. And I know that he's really anti-Christian. But when he saw his son preach, I'm sure that even though there was a resistance, there was a part of him saying... That's my boy, you know? But I know that he's afraid to tap into that, you know? But I feel like God's been really opening up his heart slowly. And so um, in the natural, there's no evidence that his heart is changing. Uh, but we don't trust in things that we see. The things that are, we see are temporary, amen? amen? What I see on my dad right now is temporary. Amen. What is unseen is eternal. Yeah. And what I see in the unseen realm is I see a spiritual awakening for him. What I see in the unseen realm is God taking his charisma and turning this persecutor of Christians into a preacher of the gospel. And so that's the way I've been praying, incubating this vision of my dad, um, traveling throughout Korea and preaching the gospel. And so I'm going to end my fast by flying out to Philadelphia this weekend, next weekend. So I won't be here next weekend. I won't be here Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, okay? Um, and for those who know, uh, some of you have actually, uh, I've been very touched by this. Uh, you guys heard that when I share with Pastor Benjamin, my mentor, on the second day of my fast, I share with him, Pastor Benjamin immediately, he said, I'm going to join you on this fast. So he's been fasting with me all these, all these uh, weeks. And he's lost um, 20 pounds already. So he loses weight quickly. So uh, you will see him uh, next weekend as well. He's going to fly in with uh, his spiritual father, Pastor Robert Daniels. And Pastor Robert Daniels is already so skinny because he, he's fasting all the time. <laughs> the question is, when does he eat? <laughs> I hope he's eating when he comes because I'm going to be eating. 
when my fast is over, I'm going to eat. And uh, anyway, they'll be here. And Pastor Benjamin has joined me in this fast. And I think when I shared with the leadership uh, last weekend, uh, there are several of you who have actually come up to me and said, I'm going to join you in this fast uh, until the end. And uh, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Sonny have also been fasting on altar, Daniel-type fast, and liquid fast here and there with us to do the full 40 days. And so, you know, I, I believe that there's just a... This is a powerful setup God has made here for uh, my dad's breakthrough. And so, yeah, I don't know what to expect in my broken Korean. I don't know what I'm going to say to him. But on November 20th, that's my 40th day. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to confess to him uh, my part in being a bad son and just ask for his blessing. I don't think that he even thinks his blessing is worth anything. But I think I need to, I need to show him that, you know, he he is created in the image of God, and that he is my father, and that I value his blessing, you know. And so Pastor Samsung had told me a prophecy where fathers couldn't take the sons; the sons are going to take the fathers. And so I believe that um, God's going to use me in that way for my father. So that's where I'm going to be next weekend. I will not be here. Uh, please, I ask you guys to join me in prayer uh, so that when you guys see the breakthroughs, it will be to your joy uh, that you have sowed in your faith along with me. You know? And I do believe, just as Doug prayed, that uh, the breakthrough, my own personal breakthrough, is you know, connected to all of your breakthroughs. You know, As I go to a, a whole other level, you know, God's going to take all, the whole house to another level. Because uh, God has set me as the appointed man over this house. And it is uh, my honor and joy to serve as your pastor and spiritual father. So yeah, that's, uh, that's next weekend. The amazing thing has been that uh, I have not felt incredible hunger pains like I have in the past. So I'm thankful for that. Maybe I do here and there, but not as, not as much as I expected. So I think there's a supernatural grace upon me uh, to endure through this fast. Uh, I know that my mom is going to yell at me when she sees me. Because like most Korean moms, she hates me fasting. She hates it when she... She can fast, but she cannot let her son fast. And uh, man, I'm going to hear an earful when she sees how much weight I've lost. Um, but uh, I'm sure that as I share with her why I'm fasting, uh, you know, it will be the one exception she'll make. She'll, she'll rejoice with me in this fast. All right. Let's get into the message for today. Turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. You know, uh, we have a few Australian friends here from Sydney uh, that we got to uh, minister with and minister to back in July. And uh, it just reminded me, uh, uh, iOS just released an update uh, for the iPhone 4S. And the reason why they updated, one of the reasons, one of the updates on the update uh, is that, you know, Siri, the voice recognition thing, they have a version for Aussies because your pronunciation, I guess, is so different. (laughs) The voice recognition doesn't really work without this update. So if you guys have an iPhone, make sure you get that update, all right? 
Okay, all right. We're so, we're so delighted to have them here with us today. All right, let's look at John chapter 21, verse 15 to 19. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. All right. In this passage here today... A lot of scholars will tell us that this passage, the reason why Jesus asked Peter, do you love me three times, was not so that Jesus can be annoying or so that Jesus could drive home a point, but it parallels what Peter did at the crucifixion. You see, the night before Jesus was crucified, Simon Peter was adamant about saying, Jesus is predicting his death, right? And uh, Jesus is like, man, all of y'all are going to desert me. Yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all do not know what is coming. And Peter is like, I will never desert you. Even if I have to die, Lord, I will not abandon you. Right? And Peter actually did his part to try to fulfill that word. Because after Jesus was captured, Peter actually kind of followed along at a distance. And uh, when Jesus was getting punched and... Uh, all these things that he's about to get go on trial early in the morning, maybe five in the morning or something like that. Peter was actually watching from a distance. It was it was close enough that Jesus and Peter could make eye contact, right? And then you know different people come. Hey, hey, aren't you a Galilee? Aren't you aren't you one of them with Jesus? And Peter Peter is like, man, get out from me, man. You don't know me. I don't know that man, right? Denies Jesus. You know, second second time somebody like, hey. Hey, weren't you with Jesus too? Man, you tripping, man. You need to get some glasses, young, young, young lady. All right? I was not with that man. I don't know who he is. All right? Denies him a second time. All right? And once again, third person comes up. And Peter completely using curse words by the time. Effing get the heck off me. All right? I don't know him. And he denies him three times. Jesus and Jesus prophesied before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. All right? And just at the moment... Some random rooster. <laughs> and Peter's like. <laughs> and he goes away weeping bitterly. Because he denies Jesus. The very thing he said he will not do. He does it three times. And so a lot of scholars will say. That over here. At, after Jesus is uh, put to death and resurrected. This happens. This breakfast happens. And after this breakfast Jesus actually asked Peter three times, do you love me? 
in order to restore him for the three denials that he had made. So there's uh, three kind of um, confessions that Peter kind of makes and, and then uh, to kind of uh, offset three denials that Peter had made. Anyway, so this, this is like Peter's restoration before he becomes a really prominent church leader, you know. And what we have here, I know that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, number one, Peter? Do you love me more than all these other fellas? Do you love me? Right? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, I love you. Right? That sounds a lot, a lot like us, you know. You know, we, when we sing our praise songs, we sing, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you, you know. And then we go out into the workplace and somebody's like, hey, hey. Do this little shady business. Don't worry. Nobody's going to find out about it. And then, you know, Jesus is looking. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to love me? Are you going to do the truth? Or are you going to deny me? And, you know, a lot of us, you know, we sing the songs on Sunday. But we may end up actually betraying Jesus with our actions later on. We, you know, we, we betray the words and teachings that he's given us. When he tells us not to take a bribe. When he tells us not to cheat. Not to steal. Not to be deceiving. Um... But the question here for me, when I really look at it, is not so much an issue of love. Because I think it's emphatic that Peter's like, I love you, Jesus. And I think Jesus knows Peter loves him back. It's not like Jesus is like, man, your love is fake. Let me ask you again. Do you love me? Peter's like, my love is real, Jesus. I love you. I still don't believe you. Your love is fake. Do you love me? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what is going on is... See, Peter's about to be raised up as, a, uh, as an apostle that is going to really give leadership to the early church. Who gave the first message at the day of Pentecost? Peter got up, a fisherman, an uneducated guy. He gets up and he just preaches this amazing message quoting Old Testament passages. Right? And 3,000 got saved on that day, the Bible says. That's amazing. The last, I, mean, I don't remember the last time 3,000 people got saved at my preaching. But you know, this is his first sermon. Power of God, you know. 3,000 people get saved. This is what Peter's about to step into. And I believe that Jesus did this. Really not a, an issue of love. But I think it's a matter of trust. Behind the, G, uh, Peter, do you love me? Is really the question, Peter, can I trust you? Because notice Jesus' answers. His answers are, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, take care of my sheep, right? What is all that? What is that, what is that a metaphor for? Did Jesus have like a flock of sheep that he left behind? He's like, hey, make sure y'all take, y'all take care of my sheep, please. Or I love these little sheep. There's, there's, there's 49 of them. I want to make sure that you take care of all of them. I mean, is there like some flock of sheep we don't know about? No, this is a metaphor for what? Ministry. And when it comes to the ministry, Jesus is asking Peter, can I trust you with the ministry? Because you said things before and you didn't carry it out. You made promises and you broke them. Now, Peter, don't get me wrong. I believe in you. But I need to know, can I trust you? Right? And so, for when I really read into this, there is an issue of trust here that Jesus is trying to establish with Peter. 
That's why he asked Peter three times. He establishes this trust so that once Jesus ascends and is gone, and you know, is with Peter by the Holy Spirit, Peter remembers this promise he's made. And he realizes, you know what? I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be trustworthy to the words that I spoke to Jesus personally. I'm going to take care of the church. I'm going to do the ministry and I'm going to do it well. It's an issue of trust. I mean, if you were looking into it, what I see here is an issue of trust. Now, here's the thing. What Jesus has done here is actually not easy. Have you ever had somebody betray you? Somebody tell you one thing and then do another? Or they tell you one thing, and while they tell you that one thing, they're actually doing another already? Have you ever been betrayed? Disappointed? Has anyone ever broken your trust? Now, in this sinful world, People will break our trust. It happens. If it's never happened to you, wow, God bless you. If you've never had anyone break your trust, either, number one, you're, you're not really relating to anybody. <laughs> or number two, you're, you, you're, your only best friend must be John Michael or something like that. Or John Newfeld. <laughs> Those two men are... Definitely trustworthy people that we, that, we, that we know of in this house. Now, uh, but for the rest of us, you know, people break our trust. And when people break our trust, we tend to put our trust in other things. Let's look, let's look at our own lives. Let's look at the world. What do people in the world trust in? What do people even in the church who've been hurt, what do they trust in? Okay, let me go, go over a few things, right? Uh, Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Number one thing people trust in, they trust in military might. Through all of human history, this is true. People trust in military might. Even in the Bible, God's people, Israel, sometimes they've trusted in military might more than they have in consulting the Lord. And sometimes they have engaged in battles where they were clearly, the, uh, the, the enemy was clearly the underdog, and they should have won, but they lost. Why? Because they trusted in chariots and horses rather than in the Lord. And this happens still today. What is the, probably the, the world's strongest military? Okay, probably the United States of America. All right. The British have a really strong um, whatever, right? They're, they're pretty strong too. No, I think Canada does like got no military or something. Do, do you guys, you guys have like search and rescue people, right? Man, I don't even believe what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. I don't know. Canada has a military. Um, maybe that's why there's so many Mennonites there. I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Now, Mennonites are tradition pacifists. Anyway, that was a joke. Um, 
But what do Americans trust in? A lot of times Americans, like, you know, after, uh, even after 9-11 happened, right? They're like, you know what? We'll, we'll go out there and we'll get the enemy. Why? Because people trust in the military. They trust that the military can do anything. And, uh, but the truth of the matter is, it took about, what, 10 years to get Osama. Praise the Lord that we got him. Now, I don't know how y'all feel about that. All right, but I lived in New York, I lived in New York City when 9-11 happened. Uh, you don't know righteous anger. You guys know, need to learn how to embrace righteous anger. All right? And some of you are Arminians, so you think Osama should have been saved and go to heaven, things like that. All right. All right, you can choose to believe that. All right, you can choose to believe that, but you know, my approach is, all right, God chooses those who will receive his grace. And I just don't think Osama was one of those who were chosen. So he got what he had coming to him. All right. But anyway, uh, you don't have to believe that. All right. That's not my message. But people, people trust in, in the military. But the, the fact of the matter is, uh, Napoleon trusted in the military and he lost and he died. Uh, Japan trusted in the military. Japan was about to take over the whole known world all over Asia with the, uh, fascism with Nazi Germany and uh, Japan, they were, their plan was to take over the whole world. But what happened? Right? Japan's military might did not pull through the way they thought. Um, yeah, some people trust in chariots and horses. Uh, other people, they trust in wealth and riches. It says in Proverbs 11.28, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. There are a lot of people in the world, they trust in riches. I'm sorry to say, but a lot of Americans, they trust in riches. They trust in their 401k and their retirement plans. And what happens when the recession hits? And all these people who are corrupt in the Wall Street, what are they, when they run off with all your money, what happens? Your riches are gone. And you're living off of unemployment checks. And you can't find a job. Because the economy is changing so quickly. Right? And a lot of people trust in wealth and riches. How many of you guys in here... Actually, don't answer this question. <laughs> Some of you grew up rich, right? Some of you grew up wealthy. You know? I didn't. I didn't. So I, I, I have no love for wealthy people. I don't blame y'all. You, know, you shouldn't have any apologies about it. But the children of a lot of wealthy people, I mean, they have different values. And I think, you know, God has to take them through some stuff before them to learn the same values I've learned. Man, I know what it means to earn a hard dollar. All right? I used to work in a sneaker store making $4.75 an hour down in South Philly. Okay? I used to sell Jordans to drug dealers in the neighborhood. I used, I, one time a homeless guy came in and he just wanted to try on shoes. And his feet was nasty and stanky. And, 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 and out of the love of Christ, I was just trying to like serve him. And then the owner came and tried to kick him out. And Man, I mean, I've been through some stuff, man. Uh, I used to work at Charlie's. My first job was actually at Charlie's Temporary Services. It was a temp agency uh, right, out, right off the uh, main line in, in Philly. And uh, it was two African-American entrepreneurial women. And uh, I did this engineering program for minorities called Prime. And during the summer project, after you complete their classes, you get assigned to a job. 
And so I got assigned to a job uh, with Charlie's Temporary Services. I was in eighth grade, I think. I had my first job. was making like $4.25 an hour. But I was proud of that job. I used to wear like this oversized clothes because I didn't really have a suit for myself. And uh, I would go and they would just treat me like a son. You know, actually, man, I've had so many African-American women bosses. It's weird. And they've, they've always treated me with so much love. Um, but anyway, some trust in riches. <laughs> and if you trust in riches, that needs to stop. Um, other people, they trust in lies. Some people know that they are lies, but they still trust in them. Jeremiah 20, uh, Jonah, Jeremiah 13, 25 says, This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Now, a lot of people in the world, man, they trust in lies. They know it's not, it's not true. You know, they have these postmodern versions of different religions where they pick and choose from various religions. Man, they know that religion doesn't work. They know that religion is not truth, but they trust in it. Because when it really comes down to it, that's tied to another thing that people trust in. They trust in their own mind. In the Western world, this is very common. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Don't trust in your mind, fool. If you trust in your own mind, and that's where the primary place of your trust lies, then you are a fool, the Bible says. Does not matter if you're Immanuel Kant, or Descartes, or any of these philosophers and during the Enlightenment period, no matter how much of a genius you are, you cannot trust in your own mind alone. But you know, when people get hurt... That's usually the only thing that they will trust in. You got to be careful. Uh, Extortion. Some people trust in extortion. Because it works. Why not? Psalm 62.10. To put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What the Bible is warning us is, even if you cheat and you see increase, even if you trust in extortion and your business does well, put no hope there. Don't trust that. All right, because it's just going to all come crumbling down when God demands His, his justice. Uh, other people, they trust in idols. Um, Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have no... They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. Hands do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. The creators of these idols, the Bible says, become like these idols. Unable to hear, unable to speak, unable to see. And those who trust in idols... Also become like these idols. 
There's a lot of things people trust in. But I'm here to preach to you today that we need to learn how to trust, number one, in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Proverbs 3, verse 4 to 5 and 6, you know, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, the number one place we should put our trust is not in our own mind. It's not in our own self-righteousness. It's not in extortion. It's not even in, 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 in men or political princes or political leaders or wealth and the economy. These are not the things that you want to put your trust in. Because all it takes is a recession and your trust is shaken. All it takes is, a, is an earthquake and your trust is shaken. The only place you can put your trust and will never be put to shame, the Bible says, is when you trust in the Lord. Everybody say, trust in the Lord. Uh, Psalm 40 verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots and in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, here's the thing about um, trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord, if you really start walking in, in this, there it necessitates and it implies trusting in other people. Do you guys know that? Now, if you trust in other people, number one, and then trust in the Lord, you're, you're, you're out of order. That's not going to work out for you. But if you trust in the Lord first, And the more you learn to trust in the Lord, what you will find out is the more you trust in the Lord, the more it's going to require you to trust in people. And for you to go into another level of trusting the Lord, you're going to need to learn how to trust people. Now the problem with this is, people have been hurt. People have been betrayed. And so they say things like, I have a difficult time trusting people. I've been burned by them. I've been hurt by them. I've been disappointed. I've been betrayed. How is it possible for me to trust people? Okay, and I'm, I'm going to try to provide three steps, okay? And how you can learn to trust people. The challenge to trust. Is that the title? Where is my title, man? The challenge to trust. Check your email. All right, actually, the internet may not have been working. It's not your fault, Westfall. I love you. How can I trust some people? Uh, there are th- three steps, right? Number one is put your trust in the Lord. I think I already said that. Trusting in people requires that you make sure your number one trust is the Lord. Now, this may also imply that you trust the Lord to lead you to forgive. Before you can really trust other people again, you've got to trust in the Lord, number one, to lead you to forgive. I'll tell you right now, you can't forgive all them people that hurt you without putting the Lord as your number one trust. You need His grace in order for you to walk out those steps of forgiveness. And when you trust in the Lord, you will know that God's not going to just be like, Oh, you poor thing, you've been hurt. You've been betrayed. Let me take you under my wing and isolate you from the rest of my people. (laughs) That That ain't the Lord. 
I mean, just listen to the tone of that voice. <laughs> and as God leads you to take steps to forgive, He will also lead you to inner healing, into wholeness. Can I tell you something right now? Jesus commanded us, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But many of us, we have a hard time loving ourselves because there is so much brokenness, so much hurt. And God wants to lead you. He doesn't want to force you. He doesn't want to push you. He wants to lead you to a place of wholeness, to a place of healing, so that you can be fully ready to trust others again. You know, I bet as Jesus was asking Peter these questions, I bet you around the second or third time, Peter got it. I bet you he got, he got hit with a vision of that day of crucifixion where he denied Jesus three times. I bet, I bet you he was thinking that. It's like, Jesus, man, get off my back. Why are you asking me three times? And Peter's like, oh, wait. <sighs> I can hear that rooster. <laughs> I bet you it came across his mind, whether he expressed it or not. I bet you it hit his mind. Now, that's my speculative. I can't prove that to you. But I bet you it hit his mind. And I bet you what Jesus was actually doing was, he was just looking at him with eyes of love the whole time. It wasn't like, remember that time you betrayed me? You know? But Jesus wasn't doing that. Jesus was just looking at him with eyes of love, forgiveness, acceptance. And I bet you that day, Peter got inner healing. You know how Jesus is very creative about bringing inner healing to us? Like so many of us, we have so many creative stories. You know, we, we get led through prayer by John Michael or Pastor Aaron or Mina or somebody. And as they're leading prayer, Jesus shows up in a vision in, in, in the memory that, of, of the pain that you had when you were a child. And then we ask people like, Jesus is there? Yeah, Jesus is in my room. And we're like, wow, what's Jesus wearing? But I'm serious. We ask questions like that. And they can actually vividly describe what Jesus is wearing. We think Jesus will be naturally be wearing, you know, white. But it's like, no, Jesus is wearing jeans. <laughs> What's he doing? What's Jesus doing? He's, he's, uh, he's coming next to me. While my parents are fighting outside. He's just sitting next to me. He's not saying a single word. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel incredible peace. Incredible comfort. What did you feel about that memory before? Fear. Hurt. Wounded. Victim. And after Jesus visits those memories like that, a lot of those people, when they think of that memory, they don't think about the pain anymore. They don't think about the presence of Jesus. But Jesus is so creative in the way he heals us, right? And I'm telling you, man, he, did, he was doing some inner healing there. You know? Do you truly love me? And I, and I know that's speculative, so don't, don't, make, don't make a doctrine out of that, all right? <laughs> this, is, this, is my, this is my Pastor Christian guess. Uh, that's number one. You've got to put your trust in the Lord. If you want to trust people again, if you're going to overcome the challenge to trust people again, you've got to, number one, start by trusting in the Lord. Let Him lead you through healing. Let him lead you through forgiveness. Let him lead you to a place of wholeness. Number two, if you want to trust in people again, 
Number two, become a trustworthy person. Oh, snap. You thought I was going to go somewhere else. No. I took it to you. Become a trustworthy person. You're like, man, I can't trust nobody. I can't trust nobody. And yeah, nobody can trust you either. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.13, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Do you guys know how to keep a secret? Do you guys know how to keep a thing covered? And some of us are blunt. We're very frank. We're very blunt. We're, all, we're like, I'm keeping it real. I'm just trying to be honest. You, know, you ever have friends like that? I grew up in Philly, man. I had like so many friends like that. Because in Philly, it's all about keeping it real. Because everybody's wounded. Everybody's hurt. And everyone comes from broken homes. So everybody's just, keeping it real, man. Let me just tell you what I think about your dress. Let me tell you what I thought about what you said about my mom last week. And you know, everyone's just very expressive. If you went back to my high school, you know, you would just find a whole bunch of Christian leads. All right, because everybody was very, like, very expressive, very frank. But over the years, I realized, man... Honesty, they say honesty is the best policy, but it really isn't. Can I tell you that right now? Honesty can really hurt unnecessarily. Sometimes you just look at people and they're like, I'm keeping it real. And you're like, man, that was unnecessary. (laughs) Well, at least I'm honest. What is wrong with you? Honesty is not the best policy. Let me tell you what the best policy is. Love is the best policy. When you love somebody, sometimes you keep a thing covered. It's not you being dishonest. It's just you being loving. You want to be a trustworthy person? Learn how to keep secrets. Learn how to be prudent. Learn how to be discreet. Learn how to say one thing and then do that thing. Learn to keep promises even when it hurts. That's the measure of a trustworthy person. You know, man, I can't think of a better example. It's Pastor John Newfield. <laughs> Pastor John Newfield, man, I tell Pastor John Newfield something, and he, he follows through. And even when it's like painful and inconvenient, like he will go and he will, he will follow through. And I'll be like, why did you do all that? That was so unreasonable. But he's like, well, I gave you my word, Pastor Christian. (laughs) Got these big blue eyes. Don't worry, I'm not puffing them up. I mean, this is his heritage. He's inherited kind of this tradition of um, keeping his word. But, you know, I'm like, yeah, man, that's God bless the Mennonites, man. (laughs) They're trustworthy people. When they say they're going to do something, they do it. Even when it hurts. Because you know in, the, in church history, Mennonites were killed. They were drowned. And they said, well, no, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to reject infant baptism and we're going to stick with the biblical view. And they're like, we're going to drown you right now. They're like, uh, well, I want to keep my word. This is what I said I believe. All right, we're drowning you. Oof. Man, them people know how to keep their word. I mean, I mean, that's kind of like their history. You know, so you know, he's kind of inherited that. 
But we all need to learn how to be more like John Tilfeld. <laughs> we all need to learn how to be trustworthy before, and it's not before, as we learn how to trust other people. We should really stop being a hypocrite and learn how to be trustworthy ourselves. Third thing. Real simple. You learn to trust again. You learn to trust again. And I'm saying you got to learn it. I'm not saying just do it. Because it ain't that easy. But you can learn it. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, learn to trust again. Let me tell you something about learning how to trust again. When you learn how to trust again, you don't just trust indiscriminately. You got to trust people again, but you got to do it with discernment. Can I tell you that right now? If you're getting abused by your boyfriend, and your boyfriend's like, I'm never going to abuse you again. I'm so sorry, baby. All right? And you're like, okay. All right, I like you again. All right? If you keep trusting him like that indiscriminately, man... That's not good. You got to learn how to be discerning. Learn how to trust people again, but learn how to do it with discernment. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. I like the message's uh, paraphrase. The message says, Trusting a double crosser when you're in trouble is like biting down on an abscess tooth. I don't even know what an abscess tooth is. But that sounds painful. <laughs> Probably like a wiggly tooth or a suckling tooth or you know, like like a root canal tooth or something. And like just biting down. Ew, ew. <laughs> That's what it's like to trust without discernment. Now we got to be discerning, but we do got to learn how to trust again. We cannot hold hostage the very thing that God has ordained for you to experience a deeper level of His love and forgiveness. Namely, relationships. God has ordained relationships as a way for you to experience His love and forgiveness. Did you know that? So if you're over here isolated with God, and you think, oh, it's just you and me, God. It's all you and me, God. I'm just going deeper with you. No, you ain't going nowhere. Here's the thing about relationships. We get hurt through relationships. But God also heals through relationships. God's like that, man. He will take the very thing you've been hurt by and use it to heal you. You know, know, some people, when they get sexually abused as children, or they go through some kind of sexual trauma... Part of their healing, sometimes it comes in the form of sharing their testimony. Ever see Joyce Meyer? Joyce Meyer was sexually abused by her father as a child. But you know how she came to a place of healing and wholeness? Part of that process was sharing her story. Was being unashamed of what Jesus has done with the hurts and abuses in her life. You get hurt through relationships, but I'm telling you right now, you get healed through relationships. The very healing you're looking for is not in isolation by yourself. The healing is over here with the risk of 
being hurt again. The healing is in trusting again. You know, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, there's a story, right? Let me just sum it up for you. Paul and Mark. Oh, let me sum it up quick. Paul and Mark. Uh, there was a point in Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas, they got into a little fight. Now you're like, what? Paul and Barnabas? Man, no way. No, they got into a little fight. They were like, Paul was like, no, we're going over here. And Barnabas was like, yo, we need to take John, who is also called Mark. And Barnabas is like, hey man, let's take Mark with us. And Paul is like, man, never. That punk, he deserted us when we needed him the most. We ain't taking Mark. And you know, Mark's over there. He's just like, minding his own business. <laughs> and Barnabas and Paul are going at it. They're like, man, you crazy. No way, no way, no way. And Barnabas is like, come on, man. This is what Jesus would do. And man, don't tell me about Jesus. I had a revelation of Jesus. You know how I many revelations of Jesus I had? I'm Pastor Paul, punk. And Barnabas is like, yo, come on, man. He's a son of encouragement. Yeah, come on, man. Just give him a second chance, you know. And they had such a sharp dispute, the Bible says. Paul went in one direction. Barnabas took Mark and went the other. Why? Because at this point in Paul's spiritual walk, he got badly burned by Mark. And at that point, he was not willing to trust again. But praise the Lord, that wasn't the end of the story. Right? Because, I mean, most historians will tell you, who, guess who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It was the punk that deserted Paul. He's the one who wrote it. And Peter, some people say this is talking about the same Mark. Peter calls him my son. He's like my spiritual son. So a lot of people think that Mark got a lot of these Gospel accounts from Peter and Peter's memories. So it's really like the Gospel of Peter, really. Because Mark wasn't with Jesus when all this stuff happened. But Peter was. And then later on even, there's another passage in one of Paul's letters where he actually, you know, quotes. uh, He doesn't quote, but he mentions Mark. Meaning that later on, even after this drama happened between him and Barnabas, Paul learned to trust again. What a key person. What if Paul never trusted in him again? What if all these other apostles and, and leaders never trusted in him again? We may not have the gospel of Mark. And, you know, a lot of scholars say that Matthew was written pretty much from Mark. Because like 80% of, uh, of Mark is in Matthew. And then Luke took a whole bunch of Mark as well. And John, man, he just went off on his own and made his own gospel. <laughs> Here's the thing about the ministry. Here's the thing about the gospel. Here's the thing about assignments on the earth. God entrusts the ministry to men. When I say men, I mean men and women. Right? It says in uh, Titus 1.7, Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work. You would think, no, God doesn't do that. God doesn't trust people. No, no, he does. Well, well God only trusts perfect people. Uh, I don't think there are such people around. God trusts regular people with all their weaknesses. He entrusts the ministry to men and women. We got we to get this in our heads. Uh, elsewhere, it says in 
First Thessalonians 2.4. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. First uh, Corinthians 4.1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those who are entrusted with the secret things of God. God trusts the ministry. God trusts His wisdom. God trusts His revelation to jars of clay. To people that have been broken and denied Him, like Peter. God entrusts the gospel. God entrusts the ministry. God entrusts marketplace callings. He entrusts them to men and women. Now, the reason why I want to establish that is because God has done that, it is imperative that we learn how to trust people. Since God has entrusted the ministry to people, if you really want to get in with that ministry work, you got to learn how to trust people. Amen? Amen. Well, I don't know, Pastor Christian. I don't know if that's a good idea. Okay. Well, the Bible actually instructs us in both the Old and New Testament to learn how to trust people. To even to entrust the ministry to, to sons. Here, let me give you an example. Right? Exodus 18.21. It says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. What do I do when I trust the active leaders with the small group ministry of the church? I'm doing exactly what God instructed his people to do in Exodus 18. Do the small group leaders mess up? Yeah. Is the answer not to trust them? No. The answer is to confront them, (laughs) rebuke them, then forgive them. And then to ask them, Doug, do you truly love me? No, we trust them again, right? We trust them again. Um, as long as their heart's in the right place, we learn how to trust people again and again and again. Second Timothy 2.2 2 says, The things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men. Now, I'm sorry my message went a little long. I'm going to wrap it up right now. But listen to me. Ignore what I just said. Just listen to me here. So I'm, I'm landing it right now. I've got to learn how to do this. Can I confess that? As a pastor of this ministry, man, I've got to learn how to trust people again. In this new year, 2012, trust will be crucial to our fruitfulness. To our ability to touch many. Pastor Aaron shared a prophetic word with me that in 2012, more leaders are going to step into their callings And a big part of that will require that Aaron and I trust them, release them, send them to represent the house. In other words, i got to learn to trust them with greater authority. Now that's a scary thought. When I think of Milha, when I think of Marcus, now they've grown a whole lot. They've matured a whole lot. But man, they're still young. That can be a scary thought. Why? Because with bigger authority comes the danger of bigger mistakes. Bigger messes. That I got to clean up. 
And guess who has to clean up the mess when the babies spill everything? It's the father. It's the mother. Man, I'm sending the Busan team down, but in the corner of my mind, <laughs> I am terrified at what this church plant is going to look like in one year. Caleb and Mina? What? A, I got to trust them? I mean, the Lord's like, the Lord, you know, we, you know, initially the Lord didn't say Caleb and Mina will lead this church plant, you know, and the Lord revealed that later. It was like real sneaky too. <laughs> After like six weeks, I was like, Caleb and Mina are going to lead this church plant. But if God told me that six weeks before, I would have been like, Mom, they're crazy. That ain't, that ain't you, Lord. Is there somebody else up there? <laughs> but God's calling us. To trust. And this makes me very nervous. Oxen make a mess. Oxen make a mess, that's right. This oxen gonna make a big mess. <laughs> but increase. Increase comes through the strength of an ox. There will be increase for you guys. Just keep the increase of mistakes minimal, alright? Keep the mess minimal. Keep that increase minimal. All right, anyway. Anyway, you know what? Yeah. Anyway, so Pastor Aaron um, uh, was saying that we need to create an atmosphere of trust. Aaron and I. We need to learn how to make an atmosphere of trust in the new year where we allow certain chosen leaders, especially those who have really you know, proven their faithfulness. We just got to bless them and trust them to just go for it. She prophesied that God's going to open up doors for our key leaders to have itinerant ministries. It's going to start opening up. And, and, and the, the, yesterday I read this, this prophecy she gave me. And then right after I read it, I got an email from John Michael. Guess what it said? He got invited to speak at the singles conference that New Harvest Sanagegu uh, is hosting in December. So he was like, you know, what do you think? You know, should, you know, should I do this? And I was like, all right, man, sounds good, man. Go for it. Why? Because I just read the prophecy. You know, what am I going to say? Like, I don't know, man. What if you make a mistake? What if you say the wrong things? What if you misrepresent our church? No, man. They just released them. Um, it's just so cool, man, how God works. And he wants Aaron and I to create an atmosphere where people can just kind of go for it, make their mistakes, and grow. Can I tell you something right now? I have to testify. That I made a lot of mistakes. That I'm not as diligent as I seem. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm honest right now. I'm being real right now. Let me be real. I am lazy. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not being modest. Let me, tell you, I'll just, let me just confess. I'm lazy. I have bad habits. I am undisciplined. All right, now, now I'm, that's not my prophetic confession. My apostolic conf- prophetic confession is, I am disciplined. I am diligent. All right, but let me just be accurate to, like, but my last four years as the pastor. Man, I have made all kinds of stupid mistakes, procrastinations. And when I was at Steve Chuan's uh, speaking event last weekend, God confronted me. God confronted me and said, you have never been honest with your congregation about the real story of New Philadelphia's growth. And I was like, God, 
God, you're right. I have never been honest about the real story behind you for the Lopez Grove. And I go speak in Australia. You know, all these Aussie kids, they're like, wow, Pastor Christian this. Pastor Christian's an amazing speaker. Now, Pastor Christian is lazy. <laughs> the thing is, uh, I don't want to go there. Okay. Um, you know what the truth is? Uh, you know, administratively, our church has got really good structure, really well organized, really professional. Uh, you know, I have a commitment to be uh, financially transparent. And you guys know all this. It's on our website. You know, you've seen the way I've been running the church. Uh, you know, but a lot of times I come up with the ideas uh, and I don't actually execute them all the time. I'll come up with the ideas and I forget about it. And then people will give me a report, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, I was waiting for that. How come you didn't give it to me last week? Hurry up, give me that report. You know, and, I, and I'm, I'm very, like, um, very demanding. Or a little bit harsh. And, and my staff will tell you. Marcus will tell you. Mel will tell you. you know, I make Mel cry. You know, well, I don't, she doesn't cry as much anymore. It used to be, like, once a month. Now it's, like, once every three months, something like that. Well, man, Mina, man, I used to make Mina cry. I'm not so harsh, but here's a true story. A lot of the faithfulness, diligence, a big majority was actually Mina. Like, I mean, she didn't come up with the idea. I come up with the ideas. <laughs> but she is faithful to carry it out. That's the real story. If you were a fly on my wall in the office, you would know that half the time I'm on my laptop and I get distracted. I read news articles that have nothing to do with ministry. You know? Let me just confess that to y'all. I mean, the honor really needs to go to some of our staff because they, they, they put up with my yelling. They put up with my demanding Steve Jobs-like attitude. <laughs> they do. But here's the thing. They still have this incredible spirit of sonship. That's how I know sonship works. Because in the past, when I did that at Campus Crusade, students left. I did that to Columbia students. They're like, man, peace out. You ain't talking to me like that. I go to an Ivy League school. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to change. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Come back, you know? You know, sometimes I've been so mean with Mina. You know, she'll go and she'll, she'll, she'll start crying in front of me. And I, I won't be like, oh, are you crying? I'm sorry. I'll be like, why are you crying? <laughs> this is your fault. <laughs> you should have done it. Right? And then, and then she'll, she'll be like, okay, all right. And then, all right, man, get out. I don't want to see you. And she'll, she'll go out. She'll, I, sometimes I actually say stuff like that. She'll leave the office and she'll be in the room crying. And I'll click it. I'll bring up Facebook. And I'll just be like looking through Facebook. Wasting more time. Let me be honest. I've done that so many times. I'm so demanding on her. And it gives her, gives her the impression that I'm being so diligent over here on the other side. But man, I'm a big hypocrite. And then sometimes you go in the other room and I'm like, oh, that's it. Mina's leaving. Mina is going to quit. We just don't pay her enough for her to take all that crap. Mina's going to quit. I am sure of it. And two hours later, she comes in with a report. 
what will it take for you to quit, girl? <laughs> it's sonship. It's sonship. It's sonship. Marcus, man, he exhibits it well. Man, sometimes I would just start hammering on Marcus in the middle of a staff meeting. And Erin has rebuked me for this so many times. She's like, stop doing that in front of other staff. You're, you're hurting their dignity. You know, it's just so unedifying. You know, and she'll yell at me. And I'll be like, I'm sorry, honey. Sorry. Can you stop doing that in front of the... Uh... <laughs> no, that's not true. She doesn't do that. She, she, she hasn't really done that. Um, but yeah, I, I just go off on Marcus. I'd be like, man, I told you the website needs to be like this, man. What's wrong with you, man? Why didn't you get it done? He's like, I'm sorry, Pops. You're right. You're right. You're right. I'm like, man, I know I'm right, man. You don't got to say that again. <laughs> no, man, next time get it done, young man. And he'd be like, all right, Pops. I got, I, I, got, I got you. Right? And every time I give him a rebuke, it's like life-giving. As if... Rebuke is life-giving. <laughs> By the way, I'm referring to a proverb. It is life-giving. <laughs> when you receive a good rebuke from a godly man, godly friend, the Bible says it's life-giving. It will turn a person away from foolishness, evil. But a lot of times, you know, we just we have a hard time receiving it, right? Man, sonship works, man. I'll tell you right now. Because the real story is all the staff should have quit <laughs> A year ago. <laughs> but these men and women, man, they just continue to honor me. And it brings out the best of me. It makes me believe maybe I'm not that lazy man. That's not who I really am. I'm a loving father. The way these people are honoring me, that's who I really am. So God, help me in my weakness. To be the godly pastor, spiritual father you want me to be. You know, and, and that's kind of like my hope when I'm going to see my dad. You know. And just to kind of honor him in a way that he probably doesn't see himself. And just seek his blessing. And be like, Dad, your blessing is important to me. So what's my blessing going to do? It's not gonna, I'm not even a Christian. I know about that. I, I want your blessing. Please give me your blessing. And Aaron saw a vision of him laying hands on me and blessing me. I'm just going to take that with me. And I hope that that prophetic act it awakens something in my dad. Maybe this dad that I've been all these years, that's not who I really am. This dad that my son's pointing to, maybe that's who I really am. And I need to get with this. You know, the big risk of intimacy is that the more intimate we get with people, uh, the more that they can hurt or betray you. That's the danger that we need to kind of deal with whenever we trust again. But can I tell you something? The intimacy outweighs whatever hurts may come. The joys of really knowing love and being loved and loving, it outweighs all that hurt. It really does. So my, my message today is real simple. As we go into the new year, 
I want to challenge everybody here in this room. As this has been the year of intimacy, as we go into the new year, let's learn how to trust again. Even people that have been hurt this past year. Some of you come into this church, you've been hurt by past uh, your pastors in the past. They've disappointed you. They may have even abused you. And then you come in here, and then you treat me like you would treat them. And I'm like, why are you doing that? God wants to use me to heal you. I'm not your old pastor. I'm not your biological father. If you learn to trust again, God will give you your healing. God will give you a life full of riches. Richness in relationships. And you will know the true manifestation of God's love in your life. Say, let's trust again. Let's trust again. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this prophetic word. We thank you that in 2012, this house is going to see indeed an increase of fruit. We're going to see the men and women, the sons and daughters of this house being sent out. Sent out to other churches, sent out to other cities, sent out to the nations, God. To carry the messages, to carry the heart, to carry the culture of the kingdom wherever they go. But Father, Lord, for these things to happen, Lord, we realize that there needs to be uh, in the community of God a willingness to learn how to trust. I just pray that in this new year that you would make every son and daughter a trustworthy person, number one. That their trust would be in you. And that they would dare to trust again. And in, in that trust that they will find the riches of your will for their lives. I just bless them in Jesus' name.